My name is William Corliss and this is the Workplace Podcast. Brought to you in association with Yellowwood, providers of executive coaching, corporate training and facilitation. Your external learning and development partner. Each week we focus on a different aspect of the workplace. We hear from guest speakers who will be subject matter experts, who I believe are incredibly talented at what they do. These experts will give you a different perspective and insight to work life, with the aim of empowering you to take a different path to success in all aspects of work life. These perspectives will include career and personal success, leadership, high performance teams, and creating a better work life culture in your organization. Yellowwood, take a different path to success with your career, team, and organization. Welcome to the Workplace Podcast. Our guest today is Stuart Woolard. He's a managing partner of the Organizational Maturity Services, LLP, and co-founder and council member of the Maturity Institute. Stuart co-designed the Omnidex, organizational health diagnostic pioneering work in linking human intangibles, for example, corporate culture, governance, human capital, and management systems to value and risk. Stuart's work has integrated organizational maturity into company valuation and strategy, helping to put the pursuit of total stakeholder value into the heart of corporate purpose. So, Stuart, very welcome to the Workplace Podcast. Thank you very much, William. It's, it's great to be here. Thank you for, for inviting me along. Yeah, it, and it, it's great to have you because I met you nearly five years ago today. We were at uh, DCU's Leadership and Talent in Uh, Institute Conference, and you were speaking about leadership for a sustainable world. So your talk there was on the advent of human governance. So this is basically what we're going to talk about today. So yeah, five years. Yeah, five years seems a long time. It was it was um, it was wonderful to come over to 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 Ireland um, and to and to meet you and many others um, and and speak about our work at the time. Um, We've come a long way since, I think, but the same. The same underlying uh, stuff, if you like, that, that we do around human governance and, uh, and understanding organizational maturity remains the same. Um, so, it'd be, yeah, it's, it, it, we're, we're at an exciting time. Um, so, it'd be, it's, it's, it's timely to have a conversation with you. And in terms of the mature organization, for our listeners, then, what might that be? What- What's a mature organization? Yeah, I mean, organizational maturity is, it's, you know, people say, well, you know, why are you using that language? Um, you know, mature doesn't just mean old. Um, and, 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 and in our world, it's, it, it really means grown up. Um, and and it's, it's, you know, organizational maturity in its essence is, is, you know, a mature organization is one that really understands that human beings are fundamental sources of value. Um, a mature organization is one where it, really they're managing people as a source of value as opposed to a source of cost. And, and that's not just the workforce, it's suppliers, it's customers, it's the you know members of the local community. It's really everybody that touches the organization. So, and, and this sort of starts to talk to our idea of human governance, which is, mm. which is really understanding the, the whole human organization. And so the, the you know the most mature organizations understand that whole human system and 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 really look to you know essentially i don't like to use the word leverage realize the value of all those relationships so if you're if you're working for a mature organization it should be a place where you feel valued if you're a supplier to a mature organization it's one where you're part of the value creation chain uh, if if you like that's not to say these are easy places to work. They're very tough places to work. You know, if you work somewhere like Toyota, you know, it, it's, it's really tough. They're really tough places to work because, you know, being managed as a source of value is, is mean, means working hard. But it really means that you're treated with respect, fairness, dignity, all the kind of things which uh, make you produce and give your best performance, if you like. Um, and, and so that's essentially what organizational maturity is it's it's really a philosophical mindset but then it's the building of systems and management practices which are really ultimately about realizing human potential 
And, you know, in terms of the, the human potential, then, you know, do you think there's a, an appetite here from organizations or have there been examples where that hu- human potential or human value wasn't maybe recognized or valued? Yeah, I mean, I think we've seen quite a big change even in the last five years since we met. Um, mm. I think my talk at the DCU conference was was in many ways quite depressing because I think the landscape there was still in the main organizations managing uh, their, you know, their fundamental purpose around delivering value to shareholders, which meant that they're fundamentally we're managing the financials. We're not managing the human beings, or if we are managing the human beings, we're managing them primarily from a cost perspective. Yeah. Um, I think that's shifting. I don't think it has shifted. Um, but our work is trying has just tried to un, get, you know create better understanding that actually shareholder value actually can be generated and maximized by actually managing stakeholder value so this idea that the human yeah. beings within your organization actually are so fundamental to value if you manage them better than then actually that shareholder value will will, will improve as as a consequence so i th- i think certainly you know the the I mean, there's a big movement around the world called ESG, you know, environmental, social, and governance. And it's really, mm. <clears throat> it's been driven uh, out of the United Nations. And that was a 2015 announcement, uh, really around what's called the Sustainable Development Goals. So um, this movement around what's called ESG has is, is largely replaced corporate social responsibility. So where our firms were, were, were kind of did CSR, uh, as a sideshow, was so- someone did the, down the hall did CSR. <laughs> ESG has yeah. become a different beast. Um, and in the early days of ESG, as it was starting to emerge, it got treated in the same way as corporate social responsibility. Um, you know, it was, the, it was you know, some people down the hall, different building, different part of the organization. Right now, what you're seeing is ESG being integrated into business strategy. So, you know, in today's world, if you're a company which aren't managing out environmental harm, um, you know you're you're losing potentially customers. You're losing social licenses. You might be losing even government contracts. Um, okay. If you've got human rights in your supply chain, if you've got child labour, if you've got those, uh, you know, slavery. Uh, Boohoo is a very good example in in, uh, in 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 Leicester very recently where. You know, the management of human beings um, suddenly hits your share price. It suddenly yeah. becomes a significant reputational issue. So issues of ESG are transforming how organizations are having to understand the creation of value because suddenly getting rid of environmental and human harm and, and being positively oriented towards societal impact and being positively impacted towards how you uh, your relationship with society and, and the people that, that connect with you is, is suddenly a, a factor which feeds into your intrinsic and market value. So, so investors mm-hmm. are now saying, well, we need to be investing in firms which are positively oriented. So you have the rise of impact investing. So, you know, we're only going to invest in companies which are positively contributing to society, which is, you know, a huge, you know, it's still pretty small um, and, and there's a lot of greenwash and there's a lot of, uh, you know, people saying stuff which they're not necessarily doing. But I think I think things are changing fast. And, and I think yeah. we're, we're seeing companies definitely um, shift their underlying purpose and their underlying mindset to how they're managing people, for sure. And I noticed there, I suppose, amongst my peers, there is that appetite for, you know, um, giving your business to people who will do social good or not having a negative uh, impact there. And I, one question that I have then is, does the ESG, is that measured through an annual report? Does it show up somewhere on a balance sheet, you know, for shareholders? How, how does it, yeah, how is it a, measured? That's a very, very good question. And it's incredibly timely in the, in the sense that, uh, ESG don't doesn't have any standards attached to it. So mm. you know who tells you who's good at ESG? Um, yeah. You have uh, a lot of the major credit rating organisations, Standard and Poor's. Uh, they do ESG separate ESG ratings. You have companies like Sustainalytics and 
MSCI, some very big organizations that have come out of the investment community who are generating ESG data, ESG rankings, ESG ratings. They're all using very different methodologies, very different approaches. And one of the problems is that um, you know, a lot of the data doesn't really connect very well to value and risk. So, yeah. you know, a, a good example is, uh, you know, Volkswagen was very highly rated in a lot of ESG rankings and then had this ma- massive emission scandal and then suddenly dropped, plummeted in all these ESG rankings. Yeah. And there's a lot of that, you know, a lot of companies are standard. So how, on, how on earth are they that high? And so there's, so standardization of ESG is an emerging theme and a very emerging product. It's a governmental, it's something which is being discussed at UN, EU level um, amongst the whole community. Uh, And it's interesting because, you know, we, we have our own rating, we call it an organizational maturity index rating. So, so what you have is, you know, ESG ratings, um, ESG standardization, if you like, and reporting standards being discussed at the UN level, at the EU level. Um, and, and so there's a real kind of bun fight for what kind of standards should we be using. Um, and, and, of course, you'll probably remember from, from 2015 that, you know, we were, we were in the early days of creating this idea of what, you know, what does a healthy organization look like? And, 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 and so, and we're, and we're looking at through, through the whole human system. Um, so we're looking at a very, we look at ESG through a different perspective. Um, and, and, and we, we look at ESG through understanding human systems, human practices, um, leadership and management, culture, governance, all these so-called intangibles, which are really driving outcomes. Uh, one of the fundamental problems with ESG data is that they look at outcomes themselves. So they might take <laughs> standard and pause. So we've got 400 data points and you kind of wonder, well, who's deciding whether those data points are actually meaningful? Do they really cohere? Do they really make a meaningful model? Do they really make sense? Um, and you're measuring outcomes and not inputs. And so if you're not, if you're not measuring drivers of something, it's a bit like accounting. You know, uh, if you look at the financial accounts, it's always a backward-looking, uh, you know, sense of health. Um, it, it's not. It's not necessarily predictive of what's going to be coming next. Um, and you know, if you look at the investors and you look at companies, they want to look forward. They want to be able to say, you know, where are we? Where are we going? Um, how can we improve? And, and that's really what we're trying to capture when we understand organizational maturity, analyze it and rate it. And I'm, I'm quite curious then because it's a bit like CSR was was nearly seen as a, a, t- a talent uh, attraction tool. Yeah. You know, look how great we are, our talent retention school tool, look how great we're doing here. Yeah. And it's somewhat seen as a nice to have versus a, a need to have and for me, then, is is there appetite there, especially when there's a lot of change going on at the moment with COVID and stuff like that? You know, how do we how do we place you know value on that? Is it, do you think there's an appetite for that at the moment with all this change that's going on? I think it's, I, I think it's not just appetite. Um, one, I think there's always been appetite. Um, I think people want to work for companies that do good, um, but mm. we've never been able to square the circle. And, and, and make money and do good. Um, I think we now can show how that should happen. And when it does happen well, you can actually be more financially successful and be more sustainable financially as well as make a serious contribution to society. I, I mean, I'll give you a small example. Um, BP, of you know, they, they've got a new CEO who's very different from the old CEO, um, is essentially setting out a plan for BP to exit oil and gas and become a renewable energy company. Now, I'm a, I, Bernard Looney's an Irish guy, right? <laughs> so, <Yeah. laughs> um, now, when you hear him speak, he's incredibly passionate and, 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 and as far as I can see, very authentic around what he's trying to say and, say and do within BP. Uh, it was interesting. I looked on my LinkedIn feed the other day and I saw um, a, a senior talent uh, manager or talent leader within BP, um, you know, sort of say, I'm really excited. I'm really proud to be part of this this uh, organisation that's shifted away from fossil fuels. To you know, the message is 
is a, is is you know I think if you were working for BP and you were being tarred with this brush of saying hold on you're you're one of the problem children mm. of climate change to one where actually you you could be a solution and hopefully BP are going to be authentic around that and, and certainly actions so far seem to suggest that BP are authentically pursuing that goal and that and that and that road that 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 completely changes the dynamics about how you feel for working for that organization having said that i think if you work on in on the oil and gas part of bp you're probably a bit worried and, and anxious yeah. around what the future is and so you know an organization there, there's you know there's massive change going on in that organization but i think fundamentally um i think you know i i, I would suspect that bp will have a, a greater ability to attract talent i suspect Overall and over time, people will be more and more engaged because they will, you know, we know we know from academic research, right, that if a company has a, a meaningful purpose, if you feel like you're making a contribution to society and not just lining the pockets of shareholders, yeah. then you feel different and you're likely to do a better job, be more productive, et cetera, et cetera. And there's many examples there because I remember one of the, the notes that I, I took, and I'm looking at my notes here from five years ago <laughs> uh, there. I know you were impressed by that earlier on. Um, is you were saying organizations are often destroyed by that pure focus of profit. So you were giving many examples uh, there. And it is placing the value on on something else. So you, you kind of had that uh, societal value you know, definition there. And you, you mentioned certain companies would say, for example, like Toyota or Patagonia, where, and I, 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 I started being interested in Patagonia. Then <laughs> after you mentioned that, I actually have two jackets or three jackets uh, now since. <laughs> uh, and again, in terms of that, it is, it, it's, it's nice to know that it's not just about the bottom line for people. And it, but how do you get balanced then when there is such a focus on costs? Yeah, I, I mean, it's interesting you say Toyota and Patagonia five years ago. Um, look at how successful they still are today. Um, mm. You know, Toyota has reestablished itself as the number one car, volume car manufacturer in the world. Patagonia's financial success has been built on the back of, um, you know, uh, being completely oriented towards managing um, our environmental harm. Um, mm. And 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 um, so, yeah, I, I, you know, Again, you know, as I said five years ago, the landscape was very different, and and there wasn't there was a, you know, the shareholder values profit maximization paradigm was still absolutely in full swing, um, and and even in the prevailing five years, as, as as you say, we've we've had a number of corporate failures, um, you know, where that where you can start to look at how companies are being managed solely towards maximizing profits putting people before profits if you like um one of the one of the companies that i wrote about uh, just every year ago was was uh, pg and e which is if you watch the film erin brockovich are the company the, were the company that 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 uh put uh, polluted the local uh water supply and erin brockovich you know um Went, you know, took them, took them to task, took them to court, and, and won huge settlements. The PG&E were culpable for California wildfires yeah. because they didn't maintain the electricity pylons in California. So, so, um, so here's another example where people are not either doing their jobs properly, they're stripping costs out, so they're not actually maintaining the land around their pylons, and so it became incredibly susceptible to fire. Um, and and that was a you know that so so here you have uh, human failings managing probably profit before value and consequently PG and E had to file for bankruptcy so you've got a massive uh, you know a massive corporate failure on the back of managing value through a financial lens as opposed to understanding that value you've got to look at value in its totality so. So you know, value is something we talk a lot about. You know, how how yeah. how do you manage value? And 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 you know, we look at output, cost, revenue, and quality. Quality being a real fundamental part of value. But there's a key piece here which has been missing, which is the ESG piece, which is managing mm. out harm. And and that's the bit. This kind of fifth value variable. So you know, we can drive volume, we can drive revenue, we can we can reduce cost, and we can drive quality. Not many companies have got those four variables right. Um, 
But we've got this fifth variable, which is we need to manage our harm. We've got to make sure that we we, we reduce our carbon footprint. We we reduce our uh, and the energy we use, the water we use, the, the, the et cetera, et cetera, the pollution we create. Um, but equally, and I think this is the really important, th- the really important thing from a human perspective is this, particularly this issue around human rights has become a, a big ESG issue, big issues around gender equality, diversity and inclusion. Um, and these factors, um, you know, are, are pushing organizations to, Embrace the idea, you know, embrace the idea that people are valuable, right? Uh, it, it, I think one of the interesting things that you've seen, particularly in supply chains, is where companies are managing supply chains, making sure that people are treated with fairness and dignity, are paid a living wage. Mm-hmm. They're realizing when they've got supply chains that look more like that, they're healthier supply chains. Yeah. <laughs> the quality of the product is better. Might be a slightly yeah. higher price, but 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 ultimately they're they're more sustainable. Um, and and they're they're less they're they're carrying less risk. I mean, I think only now one there's a UK FTSE hundred company in court in London for issues that are going on in Nigeria around supply chains and any impact on local communities. So so it's it's good that these things are, are are being brought to bear, and that translates back. I think that translates back into the workforce. Is is hold on, we've got to look at our workforce and and. And also the evidence base, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a much more, there's much grow, more growing evidence around, you know, treating people fairly, paying them, paying them properly. That, that right now you're seeing in the US, Biden is, is raising uh, minimum wages. And, and yeah. it's almost that you know, the US has accepted that that is a good thing. Where yeah. I think, you know, five years ago when we met, um, it was like, that's ridiculous. You know, <laughs> the US mantra is, you know, you, yeah. you maximize profits by minimizing cost. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, people like uh, Professor Zainab Ton um, has done a lot of great work around writing about good jobs and, and, yeah. and companies like Costco versus, and, and even the likes of Walmart have jumped on the bandwagon saying, hold on, this cost minimization around our people is a false economy. It costs, yeah. it costs us and it creates risk for us. And, we, and that's not a good thing. And you mentioned that actually in the conference, and I'm just looking at my notes here, how timely is that? And the analysis over 10 years, I think it was, that uh, companies who had bad press, such as Walmart, more people had had attended to steal from those employers that the you know, they were fairly, they felt they were unfairly treated, right? Whereas people are managed well then, not only, you know, was there... Uh, value associated that that there was less costs you know there but actually there was talent retention then yeah that, it's, it's it's interesting i haven't used that example for a long time i need to i need to bring it back out again it's a yeah. great example of of um of uh employee disengagement uh if you like um employee withdrawal you know i talk about you know if you treat people as uh, if you treat people as a cost they don't feel valued you know the extreme version of that is they damage you, and and mm-hmm. and you're right. The, the the Walmart Costco example, actually from 2006, um, highlighted the amount of theft, the compa- the theft comparison, uh, which yeah. came from their own people, and and of course that's it's it's logical, right? But 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 when you see it in hard numbers, um, the numbers are 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 are, are so big, um, and yeah. this is why I think this is why I think when you know if you look at Walmart today, it has shifted did quite significantly from where it was 10 years ago and, and i think that's because of the work around co- comparisons with costco and walmart's because of people like zainab tom saying you know retail jobs need to be good jobs and, and you need to yeah. pay them and manage people positively constructively give them good careers give them training development treat them with fairness and respect um because it doesn't pay you in the long run of course Right now, you've got Amazon going through a very painful lesson around that, and they're warehouse workers. Um, yeah. Um, so, 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 yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm always optimistic, perhaps naive, you know, cautiously and naively optimistic. But, but I think, I think, I think we've seen some 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 fundamental shifts, and I, and I hope we can continue to, you know, push that momentum along. So, speaking of Amazon, there. Okay, so Jeff Bezos is is stepping away um, from his operational role into a more chairman type role, okay? And while there is a focus on that human capital there, you know, is there, people are still using services, like is, 
He's gotten unbelievably rich since COVID has happened. So I'm just curious then is, you know, what do you think will be the driver in consumer behavior uh, there? Because obviously, you know, it's, it's, it's all about money for uh, and profit for Amazon. It's, it's interesting. We, um, we used Amazon as a case study. Last year, we, we trained 25 equity analysts, so city research analysts in, in, our, in our OM index or organizational maturity index methodology, um, and, um, which was fascinating, treating chartered accountants and, and chartered financial analysts, how to understand the human organization and yeah. how they embraced it and integrated it was just remarkable. It was probably you know, one, of the, one of those amazing moments of you know, us spending eight years trying to slog through our work and make a difference and seeing that difference being translated out into how, how, how they're valuing companies. But um, we looked at Amazon, and Amazon is a very interesting company because you know, in, in many ways, Bezos's strategic thinking, his business thinking is absolutely brilliant. It's genius. Mm. Um, you know, his kind of purpose, business principles, and, and, and values at the top of the organization are, are quite extraordinary in many ways. Um, and on the, you know, and, and, and it's not an easy company to work for. Um, in, in, in some ways, it's very mature. Um, in some ways, it's very immature, um, and it's Achilles' heel, as, as you've rightly pointed out. Is is it's you know it's warehouse workers. Well, fundamentally, it's still seeing the value of the warehouse worker as productivity. You know how much how much pro- how productive are you, and and you know it measures it. And, and and as we just sort of alluded to a little bit earlier, when you become obsessive around one facet of value, you know output or productivity, rather than quality or cost and managing that harm you 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 start introducing risk um into the equation you lose sight of the uh, particularly the human being at the other end um Mm. um, you know actually the evidence on balance you you do tend to hear the negative press and there's a there's, there's particularly during the last year there's been a lot of negative press around covid um Amazon generally has done a pretty good job of reacting to problems, um, mm. but it's not very good at being proactive about managing it. You know, it's not very good at spotting these risks arising. So, you know, people, you know, it's not very <laughs> people walk out of their work. People, you know, go on strike or at the moment they're looking at unions being organized in the US, uh, partly because they've had to take on hundreds of thousands of people to deal with the COVID pandemic and, and become become actually a very important part of, 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 of living through this pandemic in terms of, you know, delivering goods and services. So, um, you know, it, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting organization and, and it's a fascinating case study. Um, and there's some brilliant um, leadership and management thinking in some respects, but there are some very, you know, basic problems which could be fixed and should be fixed, which I think organizations coming back to Walmart finally got the message and I hope Amazon get the message, and 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 maybe that will be something which, which Amazon do figure out is is that actually you know, you you can't you you, you know you can't manage people in the way that you're managing them because um, you know they they'll undermine the value that they're contributing to your organisation. Um, you know you 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 can you can you can create a system where where every everybody can win even even where the jobs are difficult. Um, Jobs, you know, working in a warehouse isn't easy. It's hard, and, and productivity has to be of a certain level. But but there are some things that they that, that, that on the face of it they 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 are not addressing, which um, I think they should be. I, just to sort of cap, capture, there's a, there's a fascinating company in Texas. I can't remember the name of them, but if you if you if your audience looks up Zaynepton, a Texas, Texas warehouse company, and and they're, they're kind of at the at the other end of it, the, the spectrum. Um, um, a phenomenal company in terms of its, its maturity and how they're managing human beings and how they're proactive around all, 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 all this kind of thing. A bit more like Costco, but you know, the Costco versus Walmart example that, that I sort of talked about five years ago. And, and, and then you were talking about at the conference the 10 pillars of a, the Maturity Institute. So yes. when you're talking about maximi- maximizing value and understanding risk, and then you, you, you give lots of lots of different examples there so like in terms of that can you talk us to what those 10 pillars uh might be how people might get i suppose a greater understanding or um 
you know, a different perspective on their own organization say, actually, well, is it mature or actually a bit like Amazon? Have we a way to go in terms of our maturity? Yes, uh, and it's it's great that you remind me of that because there is a YouTube video of my explanation of the 10 pillars of the conference. I go through Excellent. about half of them in about two minutes. So if you Google Stuart Woolard and DCU Leadership Conference, that will come up. Um, but yeah, to, right now, yeah, the, the 10 pillars were our fundamental framework for understanding how people create value and risk for any organization. So, you know, we I'll give you a few of them. So we start with something called the value motive or, or company purpose. So, yeah. you know, a company with a clear purpose and a company with a purpose rooted in serving society is likely to create more value out of its people. We just talked about BP a bit earlier. Um, we talk about the learning organization. So to what extent is, does the organization capture and disseminate and use knowledge to create value does it get all the knowledge it could do from all its stakeholders from its workers from its suppliers from yeah. relationships with universities or the local community um, so, so you mentioned like goldman sachs before as a brilliant learning organization uh, yes can you maybe give us an example how they might have done it uh well i, I yeah i mean it's, it's interesting uh, i'll give you a different example uh yeah um I mean, Goldman Sachs. Yeah, I mean, Goldman Sachs is, within the, within the investment world has always been different because it's kind of uh, it's not always been good. It's a tough organisation to work for and 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 very transactional in some ways, but but knows how to generate value from people. Let's leave it at that. A really brilliant learning organisation is uh, uh, if you've ever been to Spain, you might have shopped in a supermarket called Mercadona, um, okay. and Mercadona copied Toyota in 1993. Um, and and I think is all and has, has a wonderful business model, um, which is all about learning. If you if you if you Google Mercadona and you look at the the, the guy that's taken Mercadona from a, a kind of a, a a sort of humdrum supermarket chain to Spain's leading supermarket, uh, they recently expanded into Portugal. Um, extraordinary organization the, the the sort of underlying purpose of the company is to make spain proud that's literally their purpose statement <laughs> um and and um you know that the way that the, the whole philosophy is we are a, a learning organization um and and the whole mentality is we we, we constant never-ending improvement everybody's the source of learning um Lots of systems of way of inter of, of capturing learning from their relationship with their customers, with the local communities, with with their own people. Um, you know, building those learning systems, um, so they're constantly in motion and they're applied to everything everything they do. It's a really it's a wonderful organisation to to look at from a, a learning perspective. Um, but yeah, that's um, and, and I've sort of tapped on three pillars which are in, in, interconnected. Really, one is learning. One is never-ending improvement. So a cultural mindset that, that we can never be satisfied. It's like the artist continually saying, I, can, I want to paint the perfect picture, but never never able to do so. Constant obsession with improvement is, is important. That's a Toyota mentality, Mercadona mentality. Um, um, and innovation, um, you know, learning, never-ending improvement and, and innovation. How do, we, how, do we, how do we deal with innovation? So that, that's sort of a, a, a number of pillars. Others, uh, we look at communication. You know, how does an organization communicate? Um, do people have a voice? Um, if, if everybody matters to value, then we should be giving everybody a voice and we should have really good, open, honest, transparent communication, um, a really important pillar. We look at trust, engagement, and cooperation. So I uh, talked about this recently with a, with a, with a, with a company. Um, trust is so important. And you say that, of course it is, but look at... Look at uh, Boeing is a really good example when trust breaks down. <laughs> um, yeah. You know when um, you know it's a great example of um, human failings, multiple human failings, the failure of, of a company to learn, ma- managing cost above, managing profits above of, of quality, um, failure to train. Lo- lo- there's lots lo- decision nature of decision making, the nature of communication. Boeing is a fascinating case study in in, in immaturity. Um, whole system is another pillar. So does the organization see itself as a whole system? Um, and I think that's an interesting one because, we, we, you know, the whole climate uh, movement is, is, has really helped us to understand that we are a whole system, that, you know, the pollution that is swirling around the Pacific Ocean 
maybe because we are through through a bottle in 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 the Liffey, right? <laughs> you know that yeah. you know, we're we're all interconnected, and 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 organisations are whole systems, and and they're whole human systems. And the more an organisation understands that, the, the 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 better it is able to manage itself. So coherent whole systems work better than fragmented, siloed organisations, particularly in a, in a, in, a, in when you look at human relationships and and the value and risk consequences. So. Um, yeah, they're, they're, they're some of the pillars. So, so as I say, you can go, you can go onto Google and have a look at more. Or you can go onto the Maturity Institute website where there's a, a longer explanation. Um, but we use those pillars to the, the one thing that we've done since 2015 is, is to produce our organizational health diagnostic, which we call OM Index, as you said at the start. Yeah. And we now have 32 questions that we ask, which are primarily driven on the back of those 10 pillars. So, you know, the bait, you know, we, we crudely took those 10 pillars and created three questions and got 30 questions and we kind yeah. of refined it and evolved it since. But that, that's the starting point for how we, how we, how we now assess and, and uh, evaluate and rate organizations. And, and that's the methodology which we now teach to equity analysts and fund managers, but also to, to companies themselves. And, and, and I think the one thing that people should get from this podcast is that our methodology is open source we want people to learn it and we want people to apply it in practice. Um, one of the things that we are very cognizant of is, is that, you know, something that's good for, that we think is good and can make a, a difference, make a contribution to, to the world should, should be open source. Um, and, and so that's not to say, you know, you don't have to invest some time and effort and some, some cost in learning around it, but, but we're not keeping hold of it like some tech companies might keep hold of their intellectual property. We want to share yeah. it so people can use it. So, you know, today we're working with a law firm because they want to use it in their world. We're, we're working with a board evaluation company. We're about to announce a partnership there looking at using that diagnostic at board level. We're continuing to work with companies directly and through various partners that we have. Um, and we're working with the investment community and trying and continuing to roll out Omindex as a standard, uh, a standard diagnostic of organizational health. Um, so, yeah, that's something. And of course, we're, we're, we're open. So uh, any of your listeners, if they want to get in contact, please get in contact with us and find out more, more about what we do. And you were talking about um, your, your research then on behalf of Cambridge uh, University. Is that, am I right in saying that? Yes, yes, we've had some some a number of relationships with universities. Uh, 2016, we worked at Harvard Law School, uh, which is fascinating. Their their, their pension and capital stewardship team. Uh, the, we we taught them our methodology, which was fantastic. Um, and we recently taught another Harvard Business School team uh, about the the methodology. We did a half day workshop for them. But the University of Cambridge was it was interesting. Uh, I w- met the dean of the business school, uh, Professor Christoph Locke, um, and kind of looked and said this is really interesting and sort of smiled wryly at me and said can we have some data to test it and I said yeah okay I'll give you some data so we we gave him some data on about 30 banks and they did a preliminary study which showed uh, some really really fantastic relationships between uh, higher rated banks and uh, better outcomes in financial terms but also in ESG terms that we've just talked about so so for the first time, we had some really, really nice analysis saying we can we can create you know good businesses, create good outcomes for everybody, um, and we are in we're still in the second phase of of a, of, of a, we 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 did a lot of work around ownership. So so Christoph was really interested in what's the difference between family owned businesses and and listed companies? Is there a difference? Does ownership matter? Um, in, in terms of value and particularly well, the, uh, the, the management of the organization. So, so they have a big data set looking at about 60 family-owned businesses versus about 30 listed companies, so just near close to 100 companies. And, and I'm hoping that we can, we'll see a paper produced probably later this year. Um, there's actually a PhD student that's, ba- that you, that's using our data for her PhD uh, working with Christoph. So that's that's really that's really exciting, and and we want you know again we want to encourage. We're doing more teaching with the universities now, but teaching and research around universities is really important to us because essentially what we're trying to do is is when I mentioned organisational health, is to say look you know uh, we professionalise 
human health in the mid 19th century really and created sort of standards and the medical profession that we start to sort of know and and, and you know largely love today um but we it was important to get rid of snake oil and quackery and 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 use proper scientific methods and evidence-based approaches and and rigorous professional standards around the health of organizations and if we don't understand the health of organizations in human terms then we're missing something pretty fundamental um we can look at the numbers day in day out but if we don't understand the human uh the human organization that we don't understand how the organization is creating value and creating risk and i've seen like huge opportunities here stuart and you were talking about you know where some people um might frown upon this and have a focus on numbers you were you were actually training 25 equity analysts uh, in yeah. this methodology, weren't you? Could you tell me just a little bit more on their, your interactions with them? Yeah, I, I mean, just absolutely fascinating. I mean, truly fascinating. Um, and I think I'll, I'll, I'll try and share something with you. Uh, I mean, we went into this with a bit of nervousness, to your point, is, is, you know, people that have been equity analysts for 20 plus years uh, on particularly in, in, in what's called sell-side research. So they're independent equity analysts. They see themselves very independent. They see themselves as sector-level experts. So if you're a banking analyst, you know your sector better than anybody else. You know your company's better than anybody else. And we're going along and saying, actually, you don't know everything. <laughs> um, you, um, and, and it was we didn't say that at the time. Um, but it was, it was, we, were, we were just trying to say, look, we can show your organization from a different perspective. Um, and and it was it was interesting you know i i I'd sort of regale the story you know after we, we we went through we trained 25 analysts and as part of a, a senior leadership meeting with the team you know one guy sort of stood up virtually and said he said you know he said he said what i just said he said you know i've been doing this for 20 years i thought i knew my sector inside out we like to think we know our companies better than the ceo knows their companies um he said but hey this this gives us a different perspective it gets it we you know, going through this question set has helped us learn something about how our, our organizations, how the companies under our coverage are creating value or not creating value and are also carrying risk. And he said, in that sense, this is, this is, this is very meaningful. Um, it's very important. Um, and, and it's really interesting. Another of the analysts, uh, um, I mean, I say generally, you know, the, the younger generation of analysts kind of embrace this a little bit more readily, I think, immerse themselves in the subject matter a little bit more. Um, but it's really interesting when an analyst comes up to you and says, do you know, do you know what, when, we, when I initiate coverage of a stock, so I look at a company for the first time, he said, actually, it's important, you know, I think it's important to go through your question set first before I look at the numbers. Um, uh, there's a wonderful professor, a guy called Atul Shah, Professor Atul Shah. He's at uh, City University now. He teaches. Uh, I taught on an, M- an MBA program. He's a finance accounting professor. And he says, he said, uh, Stuart, I spend six weeks telling, you know, my, my students get frustrated with me because they want to look at the numbers. And I teach them about organizational culture before I teach them about numbers because they need to know about the nature of the organization before they need to know how the numbers are created. And I think mm-hmm. that's what we're talking about. That's what we're trying to get to a point is that, this isn't replacing anything. It's filling a gap. It's filling a, a, a perspective because these things, are, the beauty about our work with, with, with the research teams was that we were able to integrate what they do with what we do and it complements each other. It makes it more powerful as a whole. Um, and I think this is for, for certain people in your audience, if they work around HR, particularly or learning development and that kind of world is that, um, what we've tried to do is create a language so you can work alongside the finance, you know, head of finance, yeah. the head of operations, the head of marketing and the CEO um, and do it. And, and so you're, you're, you're all working together and you're all speaking the same language. And, and in fact, you know, the embracing this, embracing all, all our work is, you know, using terms human capital and quantifying intangible sounds like you're taking the human out of the equation when actually you're making the organization more human and more humane, I think. Uh, and I think that's our that's our that's our aim. And if you pr- permit me to quote you from that conference as well, you're probably <laughs> sick of this at this stage. And what you were the quote that you said was was if you have the right uh, evidence, you can create the right narrative, and that opens up conversations. And I think that's a that's a that's a great point to make. 
Yes, exactly. And with exactly the same today, it is, is, it's really hard to convince somebody based upon an opinion. Um, and I, I say that in a world of fake news and people's opinions, you know, transforming the way. But I think evidence wins out. You know, ultimately, particularly in the COVID pandemic, it's the scientists that we go back to. We have to. We can't. You know, it's, we have to look at evidence. What does the evidence tell us? We can be convinced by storytellers and narrative, but if you've got an evidence-based argument, um, it, it, you know, most times wins out. If it's good evidence, it, it, it wins out. And, and the one thing that's been, you know, has been, you know, has been missing. With, you know, a lot of my work over the last 10, 20 years has been to to bring evidence to bear in the management of organisation, the, the, the human organisation, to show that evidence is so so compelling. I think your point around. The theft comparison, Walmart, Costco's, is, was you know, the historical uh, comparison, yeah. not necessarily today. The numbers were so big, it's become so compelling that a CEO can't ignore it, a board can't mm. ignore it. Um, and, and, and I think that, um, I think one of the things I probably said in 2015 was that when you do, when you do present the evidence, I think one of the fact, one of the things around HR people being uncomfortable were the numbers are so big, you know, that the value numbers are so big. But equally, you know, human failures bring down organisations. Let's not be bad. You know, the, the, yeah. the collapse of organisations, PG&E's bankruptcy is a human failure. Um, yeah. It's a it's a it's a management failure. Um, and so these these numbers are big. The, the the you know what's up what's for stake is huge, um, particularly. If you work in 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 finance or if you work in pharmaceuticals, <laughs> you know it's um, you know your but. Um, so, so yeah, evidence evidence matters, and 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 thank you, thank you again for bringing that quote back out to me. I need to, I need to revisit some of these things. <laughs> you're, you're quite. I can share my notes with you afterwards if you want. <laughs> and and you know, in terms of that, then it's really about you know bringing the right people into the room, then into that conversation. So before, for example, would you have finance people involved in a CSR initiative? Maybe not, and maybe heavily involved with you know marketing and HR people and, and leadership then. So by using your uh, index and um, the um index, if I've pronounced that correctly, yes. in, again, in terms of that, does, does, does that prevent it from being a tick box exercise or where's the evidence there? Is it subjective to people, how people have their worldview of that organization or where does the evidence come in? So across those thirty-two questions, and this is this this you you asked the the, the question which all uh, um, fund managers ask is isn't this subjective? Isn't it just your opinion? Um, we 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 we've spent a huge amount of time um, going through each of those thirty-two questions and identifying very clearly how you score it, what evidence mm. you can bring to bear, and how you interpret the evidence in order to make a judgment. So I I would say you know. We're making an evidence-based judgment. It's not a subjective opinion. Um, and 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 I mean, the fascinating thing about training twenty-five equity analysts was the consistency with which they can produce their own the ratings and analysis. The, the that, that doing that work, you know, we created a seventy-page document of, of an analyst guide to to, to, to external ratings. Um, um, but equally, if you're looking internally within an organization, um, you know, if we're measuring trust, so question six on our, on our, on our OM index uh, rating, it looks at trust, um, you know, what's the evidence of trust? Now, um, you, might have, uh, you might have some employee attitude survey data, which says, oh, actually, we, we, we ask and trust questions in our employee uh, attitude survey. So we've got some data there. We might have some trust-related uh, uh, data from customers so we might have some customer service uh, data that gives us some insight in, in, into trust um, some companies that have had big trust issues some of the banks have started to measure measure trust uh, and, and report on it um, to investors so you're starting to see these sort of intangibles be be reported on um, and seen, seen seen as important but you know coming back to the the, the question is you know how much do I trust this organization or how much is this organization trusted? Um, we want to see some hard evidence. So oftentimes most, um, most companies 
um, have, no, Trustpilot is a good place. Sometimes you can go to Trustpilot and see what the Trustpilot scores are. Um, uh, Glassdoor might give you some insight. You know, any third party, uh, some some government, you know, some government, uh, you know, the food industry has, you know, the fa- fashion. There's all there's there's lots of different places you can find uh, me- and measure trust. What, what, one of the um, I'm doing some work with an organization called Good Jobs First, an America, D, uh, Washington, D.C.-based organization, and they have a tool called Violation Tracker, um, and they're going to roll that out in the U.K. It's a U.S. – it's a North American-centered uh, uh, database of, of uh, all companies' misdemeanors, all the fines that they've accumulated over time, all the times they've been taken to court. So it captures all kinds of issues from employee uh, case litigation through to environmental cases through to all kinds of – stuff um you know that's another fantastic resource to look at whether there are trust trust issues going on how's the yeah. you know the company might say uh you know one of the banks um in fact that we did some analysis on had a history of firing whistleblowers and i fi- found that from violation tracker uh, in in one of our early analysis and that tells you something tells you something about the culture it tells you something about whether companies will trust you know, can I trust my? You know, if I put my hand up and say something about this organization yeah. where it's going wrong, now I'm putting my trust in the organization that I'm not going to be punished. And, and often, often we find that whistleblowers are often punished. Uh, we've seen that in the NHS in 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 the UK. Um, we've seen it in banks. We've seen it in lots of different examples. So that's a, that's a massive trust signal. Yeah. So, yeah. And I'm quite interested. Then you know is because we talked about bodies maybe you know international bodies or national bodies maybe not taking ownership there might be one single body so you talked about the un and the eu uh there and i'm just wondering is there any corporate watchdogs or corporate enforcement officers that might you know be interested in in this it's again a really good question we we've we've had a number of um interactions with regulatory bodies over the years um, um, we've had a, a number of conversations in fact we were going to train uh, I won't say who but somebody from a, one of the probably the most prominent US regulator <laughs> they were very interested in in cultural assessment so they they were finally getting to understand and I think regulators have gotten there they do understand that culture matters to, to yeah. organizational health and organizational risk that's why you see culture being put front and center now for board level activity and, and corporate reporting. But again, how do you measure it? How do you how do you measure culture in a way which captures the health of culture from a value, but also from a risk perspective? Because it's the it's the cultural piece, um, you know, that, that becomes a problem. And, and and you know, a good example, you know, the Financial Times in the last two weeks has reported on KPMG um, and talked about cultural problems within kpmg and and you know the head one of us i think it was the head of the uk or maybe some, somebody at the head of the organization um you know said was was caught saying a lot of very inappropriate things and had to had to leave um and and you know the spotlight's gone on kpmg um interestingly one of the things that the financial times pointed out was that kpmg introduced force distribution or rank and yank performance management in 2019 you know, sort of two or three years after many organisations ditched it, and um, and they cited that as one of the the problems of their one of the cultural problems that they had that it created toxicity within within the organisation. Um, so you know, I think you know, understanding culture is something which is which is now much better understood by investors and regulators. Our message to regulators has been and continues to be, you know, Omindex as a tool is useful to you um, because it can, it captures, it captures cultural risk. It captures the risk of intangibles. It captures, you know, value and, and, and risk. Uh, at the moment, regulatory bodies tended to, to take the position that culture is really important. It should be reported on, but we're not going to tell you how to do it. Um, and, 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 that, and I think that's the state of that. I think that's probably a fair state of play. Um, but I think the ongoing continual failure of companies, particularly in a lot of the press you see is around uh, financial regulation, a lot of bank, continual banking scandals and banking failures. 
will mean that, that I think regulators have got to get more proactive around this and have got to take a leap of faith and say, actually, we should be setting standards and rules and guidelines around what a healthy culture actually looks like. Um, and as I said, you know, our, our rating scale, you know, essentially does that. So it can it can be used in a regulatory context. I, I mentioned the the law firm, uh, a, one of the international law firms we're working with. You know, they work in regulatory and risk environments, so they they see it through very much through that lens. And can I ask you a question then, just on the healthy culture and healthy organisations? Then, and uh, we, we we might finish up soon uh, after this. Um, again, in terms of burnout and the right to switch off, then are these factors then that can be incorporated as part of your index? Because I know this is quite prevalent now, and it's right in people's uh, minds, uh, especially because everybody's working from home. Yes, in short, yes. So. Um it's kind of, you know, again, companies don't really report on <laughs> how many people burned out last year. Um, yeah. You know, it's not so. But, you know, some companies report on absences. Some companies report on turnover. doesn't really give you a great deal of insight. doesn't give you a great, you know, they, it, it doesn't really tell you whether it's good, bad, or indifferent. There should be more reporting around it, um, you know, because it's a mass, it's a, it's a, it's a huge issue. Um um, if we were working, oh, let's put it this way, when we work with a company in-house, which we gen- generally do completely confidentially, um, so, you know, the, the external ratings have become public and, and uh, you know, you can get hold of those if you want to. But we work with companies confidentially. Uh, and, and so one of the things, you know, the, the potential of disengagement, employee withdrawal, issues of burnout, um, you know, can be flagged up in a number of areas, Um you know, we specifically ask questions around people-related risk. You know, that's a big factor. You know, what's the mental health of, you know, how's the mental, the physical health is one thing, but what, how's mental health in this organisation? How are you capturing that, the evidence around that? Um, is it captured in absence days? Is it, but, but equally, mental health could be really bad because you could have a presentee, you could have a problem of presenteeism where people are coming to work and they're not, they're not well, uh, physically yeah. or mentally. Um, and so, so a big question for me is how are you capturing that that information quantitatively or qualitatively because they're both sources of evidence are valid if you're capturing them in in in, in the right way, um, but they must they must be part of your understanding of human risk because if people have you know if someone breaks down they, they can't work if someone is mentally is having a mental health problem they can't function anywhere near as well as they could or should be doing. Uh, in the same way that you can't function if you're in hospital with a broken, you know, broken back. Um, issues of burnout are the same. Are we, are, you know, and, you know, a lot of the engagement literature will talk about this a little bit is, is that, you know, is engagement, is, is high level of engagement obsession to the fact where you could be burning out, you're working too hard, you're engaged so, so obsessively that it becomes a problem. So, so being alive to that and capturing that you know, evidentially and being able to deal with it is, is something which comes out of the question set. It's, it's a harder issue to capture externally because companies don't tend to report on it. So, but sometimes you can pick up things in the press. Some, some things get so bad. Um, mm. You know, the CEO of Lloyd's, for example, a number of years ago took some yeah. time out of the organization because of a mental health, mental health issue. Um, yeah. So, there is a lot more awareness of it and, and you do find those kind of things coming out. And so you can find the evidence. In, in fact, it's amazing what evidence you can find when you start looking for it. Yeah. It's a bit like um, Apple's relationship with Foxconn, the manufacturer of the uh, Apple iPhone. And they came to the fore then because there was, there was so much um, focus on output and productivity that a lot of their workers were taking their own lives, which, you know, was, was, was um, that's, a, that's, a, that's a brilliant example. And I think we, we alluded to this earlier in the conversation, supply chains, the health of your supply mm-hmm. chains, you know, that's a massive issue for Apple. And I, I think I remember Foxconn building nets outside of the, the company that's facilities correct, yeah. to stop people jumping out. Extraordinary, extraordinary. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah. A, a very, really important point. Yeah, and really tragic circumstances. And, you know, I think that's what's the really important part of this podcast is really to shine a light 
on areas that we might shine on, you know, uh, or maybe look at, you know, these blind spots are, are the, those elephants in the room that we might be discussing. So Stuart, thank you so much for your time. What I'd like to do is maybe give you a, um, an opportunity here to give our, our listeners some key takeaways so far from our podcast and then how, how might they contact you? Yeah. Uh, I mean, the, 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 the key takeaways are for me is, you know, don't be, get involved in, in becoming part of the value contribution of your organization. Don't be passive. Um, I mean, you can be many, many people are very happy doing their jobs and, and find they're really important, really important roles. But there, there are a group of people that want to say, Hey, I am valuable and I want to make a contribution in value terms, but I work in a, I work in this place where I'm regarded as intangible. (laughs) Um, and you know, you and make yourself tangible. Um, you know, get uh, you can get an evidence base together. You can make a business case for whatever you do, whether you're working HR, L and D, uh, or another part of the organisation. Don't be afraid to to do it. Um, I, I think one of the big issues around HR. Hey, let's put it this way: if if we can teach chartered accountants and financial analysts how to understand the human organisation, we can do it in reverse. We can do we can. And you don't need you don't need a huge amount of financial um, knowledge and, and an ability at mathematics to, to to be able to embrace these things. Most of most of the maths and arithmetic and 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 business stuff is relatively straightforward, at least at a high level. And you can put cases together for what you want to achieve. And I think that's for me. If I'm working and I want to make a people related intervention, I want to do something positive in the workplace or I want to do something positive in supply chains, or I want to do something positive with the local communities, you can put together a very, very coherent and compelling evidence-based business case, which I've never had a problem ever in being able to put the better business case together, on, provided that the initiative has a direct link to value. That we can, Once there's a link to value, once our training program is linked to improving value, we can put together a business case really easily. Have the you know, and we we certainly we can help do that if there's uh, and and we we've done lots of work uh, around that over the year the years. But um, you know, don't be afraid to do that. And and actually, in my experience of talking to CEOs and finance people, is that um, they want to talk about this stuff because they know it's really really important. They know they know it is, um, but but no one's ever you know in the main too few people go into the CEO and say, I want to, I want to improve the value of the business. Um, and this is how we can do it. Um, or I want to mitigate the risk that we're carrying and this is how we can do it. Um, uh, you know, they are, my experience is they want to have those conversations. If you can, if you can make that link between those, those initiatives, those interventions um, and, and, and the value of the organization. And so that's what our work is all about showing is, is that, Improving the human health of the organization has a direct and explicit link through to the value of the business and ultimately will feed through to the financial value as well. Stuart, thank you so much for that. And you do have a book out at the Mature Corporation, a model for of responsible capitalism. Uh, by Cambridge Scholars Publishing, so uh, I'm sure people will be interested in that. And you you mentioned some YouTube videos. Uh, yeah. So yeah. Uh, well, I'm not good. At, I'm not good on video. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, there are. There's a. There's a. There's a video of me explaining the ten pillars. Uh, yeah. Uh, the, the Dublin City University Leadership, in the Institute for Leadership. I think um, conference 2015. So that that's that's nice because it's only two minutes of me. So that's really good. Um, the book. Uh, if 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 your listeners go onto a website called ResearchGate, it's an academic uh, 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 web. Uh, it's a bit like LinkedIn for academics um, and yep. they search me up uh, on ResearchGate you can actually get the first three chapters of the book um, so you can read the first three chapters it's, it's freely available on uh, ResearchGate um, and that will help you decide whether you want to buy a copy of the book or not it's just been published in paperback so it's a bit cheaper um, but it's academic publishing I, I don't set the prices don't, don't freak out when you see that it's a paperback's 35 quid it's um but um it, it is what it is i can't do anything about that i'm afraid but but i the first three chapters are available on ResearchGate, um 
And if you're following me on my LinkedIn, I tend to sort of uh, share some of those insights on LinkedIn over time. So please connect with me via LinkedIn or email uh, or otherwise contact me. Um, yeah. What's your email address if there were people to uh, yeah, get so in contact? Uh, Stuart.Woolard at OM for mother, omservices.org. Well, Stuart, it's a pleasure to talk to you um, today. Uh, that was really insightful, again, I must add. Um, and I think I've made just as many notes as I did last time when I first met you. Well, that's, it's, it's great to talk to you again. It's been too long. <laughs> That's it for this episode of the Workplace Podcast. My special thanks to this week's guest for a wonderful discussion. If you want to get in contact with a podcast about a workplace topic or a particular challenge that you're facing, contact me via Twitter at Different Paths. You can also connect with me on LinkedIn, William Corless, C-O-R-L-E-S-S, or go to my website, www.yellowwood.ie. Yellowwood, your external learning and development partner. Provider executive coaching, facilitation and training. Take a different path to success with your career, leadership, team and organization.